Malaysia gets a new prime minister and cabinet, the Philippines wants a sovereign wealth fund, and progress towards marriage equality in Singapore? All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is December 8th, 2022. This current resistance movement is really different from the previous one. Because that's the energy has a lot of support from the Burmese peoples who reside in the central Burmer. I think that without the cooperations between the NUG and its Burmese supporter and the EUs, so it's really difficult for the EUs to move forward and also to advance their interests and their visions. That was Ye Myohin, who chatted with Greg Poling and Alina Noor on the current situation in Myanmar. We're so glad you're here to follow this important topic with us. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Adrian Torn in the studio. Adrian is a former intern with the Southeast Asia program and follows the region closely from D.C. Welcome back to CSIS, Adrian. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Here's a fun question for you. What's the food you're most looking forward to eating the next time you visit Southeast Asia? And Drake put you up to this, didn't he? I want to hope I go back to Cambodia someday soon. And, uh, I want some noodles, like some nambuchok, or some soups, like salami chukrung, or just anything that allows me to eat dangerous amounts of fish sauce. That sounds delicious. I've actually never been to Cambodia. It's top of my travel list for sure. Oh, you gotta go. Well, let's pick up the headlines where we left off in the last episode, inside the continually developing world of Malaysian politics. On November 24th, longtime opposition leader Anwar Ibrahim was sworn in as Malaysia's 10th prime minister after a fiercely contested election that yielded no majority winner. Anwar formed a unity government comprised of his coalition, Pakatan Harapan, the former ruling coalition, Barisan Nasional, and Gabungan Parti Sarawak. His cabinet picks reflect that power-sharing arrangement. 14 ministers come from PH, 6 are from BN, and 5 from GPS. Notably, Anwar appointed Barisan Nasional leader Ahmad Zahid Hamidi as one of his deputy prime ministers. To demonstrate the strength of his coalition, Anwar plans to hold a vote of confidence in parliament on December 19th. A new cabinet, but many familiar names. Zahid first served as deputy prime minister between 2015 and 2018, but returns to the post still facing 47 unresolved charges of corruption and money laundering. The appointment is a pretty remarkable comeback for Zahid who faced calls from his own party to resign after an extremely disappointing performance from BN in the election. It's likely that Anwar did this to prevent the United Malays National Organization, BN's largest party and Malaysia's main governing party throughout almost all of its history, from defecting. Speaking of controversial picks, Anwar also appointed himself as finance minister after a lot of speculation over who the important post would go to. This will be his second time in the role after helming the ministry from 1991 to 1998. It's not too unusual since former Prime Ministers Najib Razak and Mahathir Mohamad had also been dual-hatted as finance minister. Good observation, Karen. Cabinet appointments are one of the early signals of how the Prime Minister plans to govern. I think it's interesting that Anwar appointed PH leaders to powerful domestic positions and BN leaders to high-profile foreign policy ministries. Finance, economy, transportation, agriculture, home minister, all went to Anwar's party, Pakatan Harapan. The Defense, Trade, and Foreign Ministries, on the other hand, went to Barisan Nasional. This likely sends a message that Anwar hopes to focus on domestic issues, and he's got a long to-do list ahead of him, including addressing the rising cost of food and living, lingering inflation, and a weak domestic currency. If we listed out the rest of Anwar's cabinet, we'd be here all day, so we should probably move on. I appreciate your enthusiasm, Adrian. For now, though, let's go to the Philippines. 
House Speaker Martin Romualdez and Senior Deputy Majority Leader Sandro Marcos filed a bill last week to create a $4.9 billion sovereign wealth fund called the Maharlika Investments Fund. Also known as MIF, it would draw money from government pension funds and banks to invest in real financial assets, with the end goal of promoting economic development, strengthening the national budget, and boosting citizen savings. The measure would also create a government-owned and controlled corporation to manage the fund. Romualdez and Marcos Looking at the family tree here, aren't they the cousin and the son of President Bongbong Marcos Jr.? Yes, that's exactly right. I hope they learn from the example of Malaysia's 1MDB. We all know how that went. If you're trying to get me to go off on a Malaysia tangent, it won't work. But I am curious, how has MIF been received? Good question. For context, even though 1MDB became infamous for corruption and financial fraud, it was the exception, not the norm. Almost 50 countries have sovereign wealth funds, including neighbors like Singapore and Indonesia. Still, there's been no shortage of criticism for MIF. First, although the fund will secure investment from state-backed pension funds, there are no clear provisions for worker representation in the fund's governing body. Likewise, there are no provisions to prioritize investments on job creation in the renewable energy sector. Additionally, the bill specifies that one person would serve as both chairperson and CEO. Critics have objected that the structure would further concentrate power in the hands of lawmakers who already belong to the ruling political dynasty. If corruption is a concern, the Marcos family unfortunately does not have a great track record. Under the administration of Marcos Sr., it is estimated that as much as $10 billion was stolen from the Philippines over 21 years. Sovereign wealth funds also typically rely on commodities or export revenue surpluses, which is the opposite of what the Philippines faces. The House Committee on Banks and Financial Intermediaries has approved the bill in principle, but will keep tracking the legislation as it moves through the Congress. Let's end on a positive note from the regulatory world in Singapore. Singapore has finally repealed Section 377A of their Penal Code, a colonial-era law that banned consensual sex between men. The Home Affairs Ministry will also reconsider clearing the criminal records of 17 individuals who were convicted under the law between 1988 and 2007, the year the government decided to retain Section 377A but not enforce it. That said, Parliament also passed a constitutional amendment that protects the definition of marriage against legal challenges. The amendment effectively locks in the status quo, preventing citizens from petitioning courts to expand the definition of marriage beyond the current heterosexual interpretation. In places like Taiwan and the United States, petitions in courts led to the eventual legalization of same-sex marriages, and the amendment means that only Parliament will have the power in Singapore to change the legal definition of marriage. Home Affairs Minister Kei Shanmugam commented on the amendment, saying that Singapore would, quote, protect heterosexual marriage as a key institution and uphold a society with traditional heterosexual family values, but with space for homosexuals to live their lives and contribute to society. For his part, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long said that, quote, taken together, these are balanced wise steps forward, end quote. Lee had previously described the compromise as, quote, political accommodation, end quote, between polarized segments of their city-state. The compromise demonstrates that the ruling People's Action Party recognizes changing social norms in the city-state and the world, especially as Singapore continues to be known as a hub for foreign investment, but also hopes to protect its position as a socially conservative ruling party. While LGBTQ activists view this move as a compromise rather than a milestone, it can hopefully be a small step towards marriage equality in Singapore. And that wraps up the headlines. Thanks for joining me today, Adrian. It's so great to be back in the building again. Thanks for having me, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Yemyo Hain. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm your host, Gregory Polin, and I am joined by my colleague, Alina Noor. Hello, everyone. 
And today we have special guest, Yemyo Hain. Koye is currently a visiting scholar at the U.S. Institute for Peace and a global fellow with the Wilson Center. He was previously the executive director of the Tagong Institute of Political Studies in Yangon. And Koye is going to help us get a check-in on the ever-evolving situation in Myanmar with the Civil War. Koye, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. As I'm sure all of our listeners know, the Civil War in Myanmar continues to drag on. We have now gone through effectively two cycles of dry and wet seasons in which early predictions that the military, the Tatmadaw, would reimpose control have clearly proven false. Much of the country is effectively ungoverned. And policy by, I think, the United States and many of our allies and partners has been slow to catch up with that reality on the ground. And one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on Koye, to, to talk about this is that you had a fantastic report out last month on the status of the resistance, particularly the People's Defense Forces in the country, which I think have been very poorly understood outside of Myanmar. Those of us in the West, at least who, who watch this issue, have long been familiar with the various ethnic armed organizations that have been fighting for autonomy for decades. But the scale and organization of these new what we call PDFs has been poorly understood. I wonder if you could maybe open up with a quick you know, executive summary of the findings of your report on the status of the resistance. Thanks so much. So I think the one armed resistance movement started in Myanmar, mostly analysts and international policymakers viewed it as uh, you know, hastily organized groups or yen vigilance that could be easily overrun by the winter's military. However, a variety of new form armed groups have survived the fierce military offenses by the Myanmar military, and instead of dwindling, they have obviously become a much stronger and better hardened. In my perspective, the PDF have developed from their rudimentary beginnings into a more organized and better equipped armed groups within a short span of time. So you said before that, you know, the PDF, People's Defense Forces, said it has been a mystery to the outsiders, the international policymakers, because especially due to its fragmented nature and the rapid development. So we can see three types of civilian resistance forces. The first one is the People's Defense Forces, which are formed by and the under the control of the national unity governments. The second, the local defense forces, LDF, which are operating independently from the NUGs, the national unity government's command system. And the third, the people's defense teams, what we call Pakapat in Bamis. It is the township's big local guerrilla units, which were formed by the NUG. So according to my teacher, there has been around 300 PDF battalions under the command of the NUG across the country. And the former size of the battalion is 200 personnel, but some are up to 500. With the assistance of the airlines, ethnic armed groups, the NUG Ministry of Defense has been gradually spreading out all PDF across the country and made them ready for combat. So NUG is also striving to bring the autonomous LDF under its command. So far, a few has been transformed into the PDF and the PDD and Pakafa, and some have been linked with the NUG, but others are still outside the NUG control. So the re- recent phenomenon that the most striking fact is that the PDF and also the PDD has been largely expanded in the previous months. The NUG said that the PDD, the Pakafa, has already formed in 250 out of 330 townships across the country. In the past, the PDD are township-level guerrillas, more so or 
two or three dozens individuals. But now that the PDD has been expanded even up to the village level and its truth has been tremendously increasing. So the total number of the newly found armed groups is around 100,000 troops and so far around 20% of all troops are equipped with the military grade weapons and the most are taken homemade weapons. It's the current uh, you know, developments of the People's Defense Forces in Burma. And it sounds like morale is still quite high despite all that's been going on. And I think there have also been arguments there needs to be a more continuous supply of arms and, of course, uh, money. Are these challenges going to be overcome anytime soon? Or are we really digging in for the long, long term with these obstacles still going to be in the way? The current resistance movement, uh, what we can say is the unprecedented in the history of Myanmar civil wars. Uh, so in terms of, the, in my perspective, there are three points. The first one is that the current resistance movement has spread across the country. So according to my details, from the start of the coup to the September 6, 2022, so armed clash and attacks have erupted in 274 townships out of 330 in the whole country. It means that the fighting has taken place in 83% of the entire territories. It's really different from the past, but because in the past, uh, most of the fightings that uh, took place in the periphery area where the ethnic armed groups active. The second point is that, uh, you know, the Burma majority who mainly reside in the central Burma took at ends against the military. It is also different from the past. The third point is that uh, most of the PDF are very determined in the fighting against the military dictatorships because despite or a lack of weapons, the PDF decided to produce their own weapons. According to my research, there has been around 17 weapon manufacturing workshops across the country, and it produced arms that are mostly the low-quality weapons. It serves about uh, you know, 30% of the local arms requirements. So it's really difficult to say how far the PDF will go in the future. But one thing I can say is that you know, they are very determined to fight against the military dictatorship. I think it's become clear that the military and the junta do not effectively control most of the country. They can't effectively control most of the country. The Special Advisory Council for Myanmar report in September got a lot of press to this effect, arguing that only about, what, 17 percent of the the territory of Myanmar is under junta control. But the NUG took that report and said, ah, this report says that 52 percent of the country is under our control. Really what the report says is that 52% of the country is under either various EAO control, the different ethnic armed organizations, contested control between the junta and the NUG, or no control whatsoever. It's effectively ungoverned. And the the slice that's actually under control of of the NUG and clearly allied EAOs is less than 10%. So I wonder, when we talk about command and control over the PDFs, as well as coordination with EAOs, how much are we really talking about a unified resistance movement versus various resistance movements who happen to be pushing in the general same direction now as a matter of, of transactional politics, but who may have very different goals? You know, the EEOs naturally differ in size and strength, as well as diverge in interests, positions, and visions. So we can see three categories of the EOs respond to the post-coup's political development. 
The first group is uh, actively uh, joining side with the resistance movement. So, for example, you such as the uh, Kara National Union (KNU), the KIA, the Kachin Independence Army. Uh, we can say that these groups are very uh, powerful groups. Are uh, alliance themselves with the People's Resistance Movement. But the second group, that what we can see is uh, progressively uh, aligned with the winter. So send members of the PBSD, the peace process uh, steering teams uh, with signs and see nationwide fire with the military. So especially the RCS, Restoration Council or Sham States, have obviously uh, exposed their gradual alignment with the winter. So the third group is uh, persistently advancing their political visions. So most members of northern groups, particularly Arakan Army and UWSAR armed groups, have man- maneuvered to further their political interests, agenda, and visions. So among them, the third and airline group is the strongest player, I think. So, you know, the ethnic policy is overcomplicated and fluid. But at first, I know most of the groups, including the even Sam and airline groups came to the share understanding that they have to fight against the military dictatorship in Myanmar. And also they are well aware that so far as the military dictatorship remains in place, that they could not achieve their political goals. So uh, now that the relations with the NUG and the, the EAOs have improved a lot uh, during the recensements. So the NUG and its airlines EO forms a two command structure. So the first one is the Central Command and Coordination Committee, what we call SSC3C, which includes the NUG and its airlines EAO, such as the KIA, KNBB, CNF, and ABSDS. And also they found another coordination command uh, structure. So what we call is the Joint Command and Cooperation, which include the NUG and the KNU. So I think the relation between the NUG and non-aligned EAO, such as the AA, TNLA, and MNDAA, Kokan Cruiser, have been obviously improved. So all those uh, we can see that very recently the AA has agreed to a humanitarian pause or fightings due to the humanitarian crisis in Rakhine State. I think it is difficult to keep the current ceasefire for a long time. So in summary, very recently, so we can see very obviously the improved relation between the NUG, PDF, and the EOs. This unity and resistance, I think it's pretty remarkable as you've described it. But, you know, not everyone is obviously politically aligned very neatly. And so what's the end goal? I mean, I guess the intermediate goal is to route the junta. But then... What's next after that? It is uh, the good questions and also that most of the stakeholders are considering seriously so for the futures. So in the current situation, so they have been, so most of the EU has been fighting so the civil war for a long time against the you know, so centralized Burmar governments. So we can see the historical mistrust and also the grievances has pledged uh, beset that you know it's the relation between the Burma pro democratic groups and the EOs. So in the current situation, uh, we could not see the abrupt resolution so that this mistrust and also the quick negotiation and resolutions for the future. So I think so it will take time. The first positive point is that uh, their military cooperation has improved on the ground. So through this military cooperation. I think so that they can improve the negotiation and trust building for the future. 
So the promising point is that most of the groups have agreed to fight against the military dictatorship. So from this basis, they have to move forward, I think. So we've, we've thrown a lot of acronyms at the listeners. I'm cognizant that, that maybe this is a little hard to process. But so my mental map of the country, and, and I want you to tell me if this is accurate, we have at the center varying degrees of junta control in the Burman heartland. In particular, the junta is in control uh, around Yangon, Mandalay, Naypyidaw, the big cities, and then down in the delta. The second front, I think if you if you move kind of around the croissant of the highland, around the lowlands, you have various forms of EAO and NUG control, right? So if we start down in the southeast, in the east, Karen and Kareni state, which is also where the NUG operates cross-border on, on the Thai border, you have a pretty significant amount of EAO control. And the NUG is basically renting space, it seems, in Karen-controlled territory for the most part. Then you move north up into Shan State, where things are a mess. You have this, as you said, various Shan ethnic armies, some of which are fighting the junta, some are in ceasefires with the junta. The United Wa State Army, of course, controls its own de facto autonomous state. You get out of Shan State, and then you get into this kind of crescent of resistance from the north in Kachin, around the Chin State, and some of the Burman lowlands in Magwe and Sagaing, where you have the Chin and the Kachin in some degree of coordination, but maybe looser than we see with the Karen, some degree of coordination with the NUG, fighting both in their own states where, I mean, reportedly the Chin have established de facto control over almost all of Chin state, and now actually pushing into traditionally Burman controlled areas in Magwe and, and Sagain where the fighting's the hardest. And then you continue all the way over to the West on the border with Bangladesh, you have Rakhine State or Arakan State, where the Arakan army is in de facto control of a significant part of the state. They are not in league with the NUG yet. They have had these on-again, off-again ceasefires lately with the, the Tamadol. So I just described, I think, at least five different political status quos across the country, only one of which involves the NUG as the primary player. And that leads me to wonder whether or not it is really realistic to continue to engage the NUG as the only primary player, the de facto spokesperson for the resistance, which has been the assumption of the U.S. and Europe and, and even many in, in ASEAN, when in reality, the NUG does not control territory and the NUG does not do most of the fighting. And one of our visiting fellows, or non-resident fellows, sorry, at CSIS, Mike Martin, just spent time on the Indian border speaking to the Chin and on the Thai border speaking to the Karen, Karen and Kachin. And in all cases, he reported back a significant degree of frustration from the EAOs that they are being internationally boxed out when they're the ones doing most of the fighting and most of the governing, and that the NUG is presenting itself as a unity government that does not actually exist. Is that fair, or am I overstating that case? So I think that's, uh, you know, the negotiations and agreement between the NUG and the, its airlines EOs are really important for the resistance movements. All those, we can understand the frustrations uh, and also, you know, the grievances, the mistreat between the NUG and the EOs. This current resistance movement is uh, really different from the previous one and also the previous fightings because that's the NUG have a lot of support from the Burmese peoples who reside in the central Burma. So all those that EU has been fighting for a long time against the Myanmar military meant that they are struggling to control their areas. So I think that without the cooperations between the NUG 
and its Bami supporter and the EUs. So it's really difficult for the EUs to move forward and also to advance their interests and their visions. It's not fair to focus only on the NUG, but I think the cooperation between the NUG and the EU is really important. Not only for the NUG and also for the EOs to advance their interests and visions in the future. So that's why I think that the international community should engage with both NUG and the EOs. And also they should, uh, I think, help negotiation between these uh, key stakeholders. So I think the negotiation process is uh, really important. So what we always said that uh, it's not easy to resolve the Burmese crisis and also within a short period. So it will take time. But in the current situation, the most important thing is that negotiation process and also the platform between the Burma pro-democratic movement and also the ethnic M groups. And I think it's quite evident that in Myanmar, especially given the conflict and the humanitarian crisis right now, the degree of complexity that characterizes Southeast Asia is even more amplified. And so I just want to throw another wrench in the works, if I may, and add on to that complexity. I think the elephant in the room is the Rohingya. Where do they fit in into the resistance, if at all? And are they even a consideration for any of these groups, politically and militarily? Yep, I think that the, the resistance movements that they have to demonstrate that, that their resistance movement is very cooperative and cohesive resistance movement. And also they have to engage with the every groups of society, so including the Rohingya, so minorities. The resistance movements that they stay reluctant to openly engage with the Rohingya. So I think it's not a good sign. In my perspective, the current resistance movements that they want to build a new peaceful and stable country in the future, for that, that they have to engage with the every segments of the societies, including the Rohingyas, how to live together in the country. That's a really important point for the resistance movement to engage with the every segments of the society. Can I just really quickly follow up on that? Is there willingness on the Rohingya side, given the lack of trust historically? Yeah, I think that's uh, so far the Rohingya minority, leaders of the Rohingya minorities, uh, they are very willing to engage with the resistance movement. And also they are willing to join side with the resistance movement to build it a new future. So some leaders of the resistance movements are still reluctant to openly engage with the you know Rohingya minorities. So they have to change the cause. Okay, as we think about the political future of a post junta Myanmar. It seems we have multiple possibilities. The least likely to me at this point seems junta control, right? It's, it's incredibly unlikely that the junta will be able to establish control over all of the country, or at least all the country that they controlled prior to the coup. And so then you have two options. One, some kind of new unity government, whether it's a confederation of independent states or a loose federalism or whatever it is. And the other is all of these EAOs go their own way and you get de facto declarations of independence, which seem certainly possible in Arakan State, in Chin State, in Karen, where EAOs control territory without needing the NUG. And the way to head that off previously was supposed to be the political dialogue 
through what the NUG was calling the, the NPCC, the National Political Consultative Committee. That, as far as I can tell, is all but collapsed. And coordination with the AOs now is just on the tactical level, right? You have the C3C and the J2C, these two committees set up to coordinate military activity with the Karen, the Kareni, the Kachin, the Chin. But is there a political dialogue marching alongside of that? to avoid state fracture, where these EAOs just say, okay, we've achieved our autonomy. We've done what we were in this fight to do. We don't really care what happened to the Bamar lowlands. Yeah, I think that's the current, you know, military cooperations between the NUG, PDF, and the EOs. It's a fast step for the all resistance groups, all anti-winter groups to go through political negotiations to bid at future Myanmar. So in the past, most of the groups, uh, you know, they mainly focus on the negotiations of the post-conflict political arrangements. So I think such a power consideration is the key factor in the alliance formations in civil war. So without having any power and military cooperation on the ground, such, you know, the negotiation and discussions or the vaguely visionaries political future is unrealistic. So since the start of the resistance movements, there's a sense uh, political platform negotiations for the political future of the country meant that they have not achieved any tangible result so far, although they can produce a federal democratic charter or something. But in my perspective, they are struggling to convince all groups to bind in their charter. Now that the changing trend is that the military cooperation on the ground have improved. So based on this military cooperation, I think that they can bait at threats and also they can uh, move forward to the political negotiation. That's the most realistic pathway for the resistance movement instead of, you know, vaguely negotiations and also compassionations or stakeholders to commit to the post-war political arrangement. So I think in the current situations, the future of the country is depends on the leaders of the resistance movement, how they will make cooperations more concretely on the ground and also how they will move forward the political negotiation step by step. So Koye, we've heard some chatter about national elections next year that Minong Lang is talking about. We've seen this play before. What are your expectations for it? So I think that the proposed 2023 election could not bring the stability to the country. So it's the one thing that I can certain. So it will bring more the conflict and the instability to the country. So the second point is it's not possible for the winter to hold the nationwide elections due to the lack of control across the country. And also another point is that its basic administrations have crumbled in most parts of the country. But the same regional countries and same in the international community expected the winter election can bring the same sort of stability and legitimacy to the current regime and also that it can trigger a possible reform in the future. But I don't think so. I really totally disagree with this perspective. So because the first point is that the winter doesn't have a capacity to hold the elections across the country and also they cannot have the very strong electoral infrastructure across the country. And also another thing is that it will bring the most instability and the fightings to the country. So I think that's the only way to the stability and peaceful future Myanmar, the negotiations and cooperation and agreements amongst the resistant forces can bring the stability to the country in the future, I think. 
Well, Koye, thank you so much for your time. And thank you, as always, to the listeners for tuning in. Alina, thank you for helping me steer this this ship. We're going to be back for one more holiday special in two weeks, just Alina and I. And in the meantime, all of you enjoy the next two weeks and we'll see you soon. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you have. Do us a favor. Subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Our producer for this episode was Shivank Janji, and our intern is Mike Tiernan. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Adrian Chorn. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for Southeast Asia Radio's final episode of 2022.